0: Well, I wonder what you think the most important day of your life will be. For many of you, you think it's the day you'll get your license where you go to the DMV and you sit next to some smelly person and they grade your driving. It's the last time you ever want your driving graded by anybody else. And once that happens, you're good. The only person that will ever grade you is a cop when he pulls you over. Uh, that's an important day get your license. Many of you have gone through that day, though, and maybe you've noticed, like, that day comes and it goes, and yeah, now you drive, but it probably wasn't the most important day of your life. Many of you are looking forward to the day you graduate from college, or from high school rather, as the most important day. Maybe some of you think college. Now, I don't think you'd be foolish to think graduating from high school is a big deal because when it happens, it might not feel like such a big deal, but the reality is everything that came before that was a massive amount of work. I mean, think about every page that you read, every hour that you studied, every paper that you wrote every worksheet, every assignment, every textbook. Think about all of it combined for 12 or 13 years. It's a lot. In fact, they say that if you do normal school for 12 years, right, kindergarten through, you know, 12th grade, you will be in school for about 12,000 hours. Just in school. Not to mention all the work that you do outside of it. So it is a big deal. And really, when you graduate, that's kind of our culture's, you know, send-off for adulthood, Once you graduate high school, it's like that's when you go off and you're going to be an adult. And I think there's some truth to that, and it's good. And hopefully you're excited about it, and hopefully you're looking forward to it. Many of you seniors taste it. It's coming really fast for you. But there's another day that biblically I think is just as important, if not more important, that is on the horizon for 90% of you. And the problem is it's a day that very, very few people ever prepare for. It's a day that comes along where you're going to stand up in front of a bunch of people and there's going to be a pastor there and you're going to be either in a super nice dress or a super nice suit that you rented from somebody and you're going to send back and there's going to be all these things that happen where the pastor at the end of it will say, by the power vested in me, by the state of California, and more importantly, as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I now pronounce you husband and wife, you may kiss the bride. And then everyone cheers. And you have an awkward public kiss in front of everybody. Yeah. And then you hold hands. You walk down the aisle. And it's, I am pleased to introduce to you for the very first time Mr. and Mrs. such and such. And you walk down the aisle. And some your favorite song plays on. And you're excited. And everyone's taking pictures. And you pause down the aisle to take a, you know, another picture. And you guys kiss. And you tell the bridesmaids and groomsmen, don't go down the aisle so fast. And it's all this big day. And then there's a reception and all that stuff. Your wedding day. There's as much or more fanfare for your wedding day, and biblically, I think that's not a bad thing because it's a huge deal. It's the day that you go from being considered a single person in the eyes of God and everybody else to that next day, you're considered a married person, one flesh, together, considered one new family unit. Here's the problem. You and I will spend 12,000 hours or more preparing to graduate from high school and go out into the world. Most people and many Christians And sadly, many people who grow up in church just like you will not spend any time preparing to get married. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We approach Ephesians chapter 5. We're in the middle of it. If you can look in your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. What you're going to see is Paul is going to direct his attention now at this church to different groups of people. He just said, if you're a Christian, you should be filled with the Spirit, which means you're following his leadership. And what that looks like is you start to be singing and making melody in your heart it looks like you start to be a grateful person. then it looks like you submitting to one another, right? Being less selfish and putting others' wants and desires before your own. And then verse 22 is gonna be this big shift that he says, all right, now let me talk to the groups of you in the church. And here's one way to look at it. He just said, you should walk by the Spirit. You should be filled with the Spirit. And then he said, this is what it looks like for you to do that. Now he's gonna take that principle and he's gonna say, what does it look like if you're married? what does it look like if you're single? What does it look like if you're a parent? What does this look like if you're a kid? What does this look like if you're a slave? What does this look like if you're a master? And that's this whole series. Church family, this series, is all about what does it look like for you to live as a Christian in all the different roles that you'll find yourself in. And most of you will find yourself in multiple of these positions. And now, he turns his attention to the ladies, right? So today, the title of the sermon is Future Wives because that's who he's talking to. He's talking to current wives, but I know that they recognize that as we approach a text on marriage and I say, here's how you should be as a married person. Here's the thing. Uh, you can't do that right now, right? Unless you're married. Unless you're a leader, then this sermon's, you know, for you too. But think about it, right? For a, as you, as a high school student, how much is this sermon really for you? Well, it is for you. God's word is very important for you, but here's a way I want you to look at it. What we're gonna do today as we approach this text and even take a broader view of what God says about marriage, I want this text and others in the Bible to shape your view of what this is going to be like because I want you to prepare for it. Whether you're a guy or a girl, I need you to prepare for it and we'll start here in verse 22. Look what it says. His wives submit, which comes from verse 21. Remember in verse 21, he says if you're a Christian, you're going to be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now he says in the context of marriage, he says wives, here's what you're going to be doing. You're going to be submitting your will and your intentions, and your thoughts to somebody, your own husband. You don't have the same responsibility as a lady to submit to every person, but he says, no, to the the husband that you choose, your own husband, you do have a responsibility to submit. Verse 23 says, why? Well, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So he's drawing a connection. He's saying, okay, if you're married, and husband and wife, right? And in that relationship, it's similar, it's not the same thing, but it's a picture. It's like this. The church, all of us, we submit to Christ. Christ has already been called our head. I actually saw that earlier in the book where it says Jesus is the head of all things, right? And everything in this universe, at one point, will come underneath the lordship of Jesus. We'll become the body and he's the head. He says, if you're in the church, he's already the head, and we're like the body. Right? So here's what he's saying. If you're married you got these two people, right? A husband and a wife. Who's the head and who's the body in that analogy? He says, well, in that analogy, the husband is the head and the wife is the body. That's the picture. He's drawing an illustration here. And he's saying in verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, because he's our head, which head means authority. Head means the one who calls the shots. Your head is your authority, right? You know that? Your body does what your head wants it to do. Right? Your head sends the signals to the rest of your body. Your body follows. Right? If your body doesn't follow your head, you've got problems. So what he's using this word head to represent is it's like the authority figure that calls the shots and the rest of us willingly follow. Jesus, for the church, is our head. Right? We don't get to decide to do whatever we want to do. Right? Christians, none of us, we can say, oh, we just live our life however we want to. None of us say that, right? And if you do say that, it's wrong. Because Jesus calls the shots. He's our head. We all submit to him. He says, in a marriage... If you bring this picture into a marriage, the husband's ahead, the wife follows, and it says, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So he takes it further. He's like, not just a general disposition that you like are respectful, right? that's important, he's gonna say that in verse 33 later, but more than that, it's like when it comes down to the details of life, when it comes down to the decisions that we make, right? when you both have different ideas, at the end of the day, one's gonna win. Right? And he says, Ladies, you need to let your husband win in that situation. Now, this text, read clearly to you, in our culture, probably sounds odd. Some of you know this text, or you're like, okay, yeah, I know what the Bible says. Um, but others of you don't know what the Bible says here, and this sounds weird. Right? In order for you to really understand what he's saying, what I want to do first is take a big step back and look at everything that God says about marriage, and I think it will start to have all this make more sense to us, okay? So the first thing we're going to do, point number one, it's different than what we normally do. We normally take verse by verse and look at, you know, what does verse 22 say? What does verse 23 say? What I want to do is say, what does the whole Bible say about marriage? So point number one, first important thing is I want you to agree that marriage is designed and defined by God, okay? That's our starting place. I want you to agree, and as you walk away from today, even if you don't believe it all now, I want you to walk away and say, okay, I agree. I, I, I see this, that God designed it, and God defines it, right? If you write a story or a novel, or you're, you know, more industrious, and you're like a video game creator, right? And when you make your own little world, well, then you're the designer. That also means that you're the definer of what goes on there. So this is, shouldn't be a shock to any of us, but the first verse in all of the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Heavens and the earth is an expression in Hebrew, which means everything. What's up, what's down, right? The stuff in the sky, the stuff on the ground, right? Everything. He made everything. He made you, He made love, he made logic, and he also made marriage. In order to see this, let's turn back in our Bibles. Let's look to the beginning. This is going to be helpful. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1. Should be easy for you to find here. Shouldn't be that difficult. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 is where we're going to start. Genesis 1, 27, page 2 of your Bibles, probably. Maybe page 1, if you've got another Bible that's short. It says this. He's just made everything. This is the sixth day of creation. He's just talked about a lot of different things, and God has made the heavens and the earth. And in verse 27, he explains something very important about how he made us. So God created us, and look what it says, verse 27, Genesis 1:27. So God created man in his own image. That word man is a general term to describe humanity, right? He made people in his image. In the image of God... He created them. So let's talk about that. Image of God. What does that mean? Well, there's a lot that that means in scripture, but suffice it to say this. If I make something in my image, I make it like myself in some regards. Okay? It's, it's like me somehow. It's not me. It's not the same thing as me, but it's like me. Okay? That's what it means to be made in the image of anything. Okay? So we could debate all of what that means, but the point is human beings are special and they're God's special creation and we reflect him in some way. And then it says he created him male and female, he created them. Them is a word that refers to both of them. That's not talking about one person. That's talking about both people. So in the beginning, what did God do? He made a man and he made a woman, right? A he and a she. He made two genders. And at the beginning, he said it was very good. And that's what he did. That's God's creation. And then you're thinking, well, what does this have to do with anything else? Look at verse 28. He says, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply And fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of all the earth with every tree and its seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And he goes on to talk about all the the animals too. Point is, God made the world and he made it for these two people. They're special creations of God. And that's how it started. If you drop down to verse 24 of the next chapter, look at Genesis 2, 24 real quick. This is a retelling. Genesis chapter 2 repeats what happens on day six. And after he makes Eve, and after they get married, so to speak, after there's this conversation about how they're going to be one thing, Genesis 2, 24 says, therefore, in the future, which includes us, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Okay. There's God's picture for marriage right there. You got a guy, leaves home, right? Not going to be with mom and dad anymore, not under the same authority, not under the same jurisdiction anymore. And then that guy holds fast to his wife. So they connect. Now they're one. And it says, now the two shall become one flesh. So it's almost like God views them as this new unit. It's not almost like, it is like, that's what God's saying. Okay. So I got some subpoints for you that kind of come from these concepts that are in Genesis, not just Genesis, but we'll talk about other verses. But if we're going to get a biblical concept of marriage, the first thing you got to realize, uh, letter A, marriage is between one man and one woman, right? That is what marriage is. There's nothing else that marriage is. There can be other relationships that you can call marriage, but God never views those things as marriage. And today, there are many people who are legally married as homosexuals, Now, I'm not denying that there is a relationship there or that even there's a legal union there. But it's not marriage. It's something else. Whatever it is, it's not what this is talking about here. Whatever it is, we wouldn't use the word marriage for it because that's not what God says it is. These people, where the two shall become one flesh, leads to something that Jesus says. If you're in... Genesis 2, turn with me um, to the New Testament. Let's look at what Jesus has to say about this because he actually quotes this passage when asked about marriage. It's in Matthew chapter 19. Everybody turn there real quick. After you write down letter A, turn to Matthew 19. Hopefully this will all start to make more sense to all of us. This is how God designed it, right? And anything that God designs and calls good is a good thing. There can be sin in the picture. There can be bad things that make it worse, But in its essence, this is good, right? One man, one woman being married. And the problem is, like many people, once the topic of marriage comes up, a lot of people want to bring up the exceptions or the problems in marriage or other definitions of marriage. And that's what happened in Matthew 19. In fact, these Jewish people come and talk to Jesus and ask him to solve a controversy. Because at the time, there were two schools of thought when it came to getting divorced. There were two schools of thought within the Jewish people. One school of thought said, you shouldn't divorce your wife, right? God made a male and female at the beginning, don't get divorced, right? Unless, I mean, if you can help it, just don't get divorced. That was what one side said. Another side said, hey, in the Bible, Moses said that if there's a big problem, you can get divorced, but those people took it a step further and said, well, Moses might have said that, but I think now and today, you should be able to divorce your spouse if you just don't like them. You should be able to divorce your spouse for any reason. That's what one group of Jewish people were saying. So the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, okay, you're a smart guy, settle that question. Because people are pointing to different Bible verses trying to prove their point from the Bible. You tell us what you think. What does Jesus do? Look at verse three. This is Matthew 19:3. It says, and the Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Your point is, can... Can we do what some of the Pharisees are saying, that like just divorce your spouse, it doesn't matter? No. Jesus answered, have you not read? So, just wanted you to notice something right there. Jesus doesn't say, hey, I'm gonna give you a new teaching that I'm now giving to you for the first time. That's not what he says. He asks them a question and says, have you not read? Point is, you should know based on what Genesis says. This shouldn't be a question for you. If you got your Bible, you should be able to figure it out. You don't need Jesus to know this, is what he's trying to say. Interesting statement. Have you not read that from the beginning, look what it says, have you not read that from the beginning, he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, okay? So he's about to quote Genesis, he quotes Genesis 127 right there, right? He who made them in the beginning made them male and female. That's Genesis 127, we just talked about it. Uh, Which by the way, a little side note, there are a lot of people who will tell you that Jesus never, ever addressed the topic of homosexual marriage. Okay, this passage is very helpful because Jesus actually does address this topic. He does it in an indirect way, and what he says is, look, you want to know about marriage? I'll tell you about marriage. Okay. Man and woman, right? as God made them from the beginning, verse number five, and he said, therefore, he quotes the Bible, therefore, Genesis two twenty-seven: a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So, that's the end quote, right? So, they are no longer two, but one flesh. So there's something that happened when they got married that now God views them as one thing now. It says, then what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So that's the answer to the question. He says, no, don't get divorced. Don't just say, hey, I want to divorce my wife because you know, her cooking's not very good. And Seriously, I know that sounds like a joke, but you know, there were Jewish people at the time who wrote, who talked about, hey, if you don't like what your wife makes you for food anymore, you can just divorce her. Right? So that was a real thing that was being said at the time. And Jesus says, no, 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 can't do that. Because what God has joined together, let not man separate. Uh, Letter B, another thing about marriage, marriage is meant to last until death. Marriage is meant to last until death. That's the design. There are times where that doesn't happen. And every time that that doesn't happen, it's an evidence of brokenness. There's sin involved. Um, On one side or another, right? It's, It's not a good thing, is my point. If this marriage is separated by anything other than death, what, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Here's the interesting thing. He says, what God has joined together. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but who joins people together in marriage? You and your decision and, you know, you write in the little signature on the, on the line for the Orange County Register. and you know, is that, you, Do you join yourself together? This text says, no, you didn't join yourself together. God joined you together. So the day you get married, God will join you together with that person that you agree to marry who joins you together, you or God? right? God. And then he says, let not man separate. So when you get divorced, who's separating you, God or man? Well, you would be. So here's what he's saying. If you get divorced, you marry somebody, God joined you together. You get divorced, man is separating it, man or woman, right? We are separating something that God joined together. Here's what it's not saying. Hey, marriages can never be separate, Marriages can never end. you know why? Because God ends marriages all the time. You know how he ends them the right way? He kills you. You never thought about that? Okay, let's just think about my funeral for a second, okay? If I die sometime soon, I hope that you show up. You don't have to show up. If you didn't like me, it's okay. Um, just don't, you know, throw rocks or anything, okay? But if I die, let's say in the next six months, right, before the end of the year, okay, um, you know, there'll probably be a funeral at church, right? People will show up, you know, maybe, Uh <laughs> My wife will be there. She'll be in the front row, right? Um, Odd question. Probably not when you're thinking at a funeral. I hope you don't think it at a funeral. Um, But am I married to Alexandra anymore? No, I'm not. Is Alexandra married anymore? No, she's not. She's single, right? Don't get any ideas, right? Um, But she's single, right? We've talked about it. It's like, hey, if I die, right, you know, you, Alexander, you need to get remarried, like, soon, like, don't, you got two kids, like, you got to figure it out soon, and, you know, she'll probably take a while, but not that long, right, uh, <laughs> it'll be great, um, she'll be fine, I'm not, I don't, I'm not planning on dying, okay, I just, sorry, I kind of was talking, I just played it out a little too far, Let's you into my, my concerns, I had to write a, a last will and testament when I went to Hawaii with her, we, like, my dad's like, you got to write a will. Just write it on a thing. So I literally wrote it, and I put it in my nightstand. So it's like, hey, uh, we've got to figure out what we're going to do with the kids if we die, whatever. Um, anyway, point is, when I die, right, if and when, which, you know, I'm counting on a when at some point, uh, or she dies, guess what? Marriage, over. Marriage is over. Weird thought. You don't think about it very often, But when you're studying marriage, it's an important thought. Here's why. We do not believe that marriage is eternally permanent. The person that you marry and that you stand before God and these witnesses and you get married, guess what? You are not permanently married to them. Odd thought. Some religions teach differently. Even Mormons, they teach that it's an eternal union. We do not believe it's an eternal union. Because God's word says it ends at death. Here's here's another text. Romans chapter 7 verse 3 says this. You just write that down. I'll, I'll read it for you. Accordingly, a woman would be called an adulteress, right? Someone who's cheating on her spouse, if she goes and lives with another man while her husband is alive, right? Like if you're married and you just said, you know, peace out, and you went and, you know, live with some other man, the Bible would call you an adulteress if you're a lady, right? Or an adulterer if you're a man. Right? That's cheating on your spouse. It's wrong. You can't do that. Then he says, but if her husband dies, She's free from that law. So like the covenant that's between us is over. God ended it, right? Because I were to die or a man were to die. She's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. She's following God's law. That's totally fine. She can get married again, That's not a problem. We also don't believe that if you get married once, it'd be sin for you to ever marry again if um, your spouse died. Bible doesn't say that. In fact, there's plenty of examples of godly people doing that, not just in the Bible, but all throughout church history, right? Their spouse dies, you can get married again. Marriage is meant to last until death. But, you know, we don't focus on how God ends it, but I want you to think for a second that it is meant to last until death. So when you find someone to get married to, here's what you're saying. I'm with you until I die or you die. I'm with you. We're not separating. We're not breaking up. We're not gonna have a fight and say, you know what, we'll just, we can't resolve our differences. No, the day you decide to get married before God, you're agreeing, you are gonna stick together through thick or thin, Whatever happens, until one of you dies, then you can get remarried and be free. But until then, you're together. Can I tell you something? Um, In America, here's the statistics on divorce. uh, 20% of marriages end in the first five years right now. 20%. One in five marriages end in the first five years right now in America. 32% of marriages end in divorce in the first 10 years. So most people... Right, make it out of that five years. And most people make it past 10 years. But get this, right now, 41% of first marriages end in divorce in our country. 41% of people who are getting married for the first time, right? It'd be like a young person getting married, or if you've never been married before, that's a first marriage. Second marriages, how many of those end in divorce? Get, get this, 60% of people who are getting married for a second time end in divorce, it gets worse for third marriages, right? They probably keep stats beyond that, but I only looked up to third marriages. 71% of third marriages end in divorce. So, this is one of those things that when it happens once, it's easier to happen again statistically at least, right? And I think there is something to that. Here's the point, if you get married, your marriage is meant to last until death. I know there's exceptions because if you're reading here in verse number 8, if you're back in Matthew 19, he says it was because of your hardness of heart that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But it wasn't the beginning. It wasn't from, It wasn't so from the beginning. And verse 9 gives an exception. It says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Right? You go and, you know, just say, decide, ah, uh, we don't really work. And you go and marry somebody else. Here's what Jesus says. You're committing adultery. When? When you left somebody? Not when you left somebody. When you got married to the next person. Very interesting. Countercultural. Not necessarily what the world believes, but it's what Jesus very clearly says here. And again, there are exceptions, right? Sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 7 gives others, right? If your spouse abandons you, right? And refuses to live with you, right? You can be free from that marriage, right? You can be divorced. There's times where you can. But the exceptions are not what we want to look for. I said this already, but letter C, this might be another impactful one for you. Marriage is meant to create a new godly home. Marriage is meant to create a godly home. What it does definitely do is create a new home. That's always what it does. Whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, whoever gets married, you're starting a new home. And in God's eyes, you got a new family unit right there. But what it's meant to do from the beginning, from Genesis 1, and now for you living thousands of years later in the church age, when you get married, it's meant to create a godly home. That's why the first command to Adam and Eve after he says, hey, I made you this way, this is great. Hey, here's the command. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Odd thought, kind of countercultural, but but here's what marriage is also meant for. We, we need to have kids that are born to continue humanity. Where is that supposed to happen? Where does God, in God's perfect design, where is kids, where, how are they supposed to be born? Well, supposed to be born in a marriage. That doesn't mean if you weren't born in a marriage, you're less than. It's just saying, this is how God designed it because he knows it's best for you and for, for everybody involved. That's the first command. So here's an interesting thing about marriage. Uh, if you get married, you need to be open to being fruitful and multiply. Right? That means having kids. You need to be open to having kids. Now, are there exceptions? There's always exceptions because if there are some people who can't have kids, and in a room this size, right, there's something like you know, over one in ten people, or more than that actually, struggle with some kind of infertility. Right? Uh, there'll be people in this room who will want to have kids but then won't. Be able to have kids because your body won't allow you to have kids. That's not a sin, right? It's not that you've done anything wrong, but as a couple, once you get married and even before you get married, you need to say we're open to the idea of being fruitful and multiplying because that's the first command that God gives. That doesn't mean you have to have twenty-five kids, right? Uh, but it it means you need to try to have some, right? It, i would just recommend at least try to reproduce yourself right if you can and again there's always exceptions because there's health things that come in that restrict you from being able to do it And i get that but i'm talking about the ideal here i gave you stats about um divorce in america here's some stats about the current birth rate it's kind of an odd thought but for every two people in america it's estimated that 1.7 kids are born right not 1.7 kids but for every two so average it out right um one kid doesn't come out as a 0.7 kid. It's like you look at your sibling, and maybe there's two of you. Like, I'm the one, and you're the 0.7, right? Not like that. Um, but that's the average. H- how many, logically, you, you don't need to be a mathematician to figure this out, but how many kids do you think need to be born to keep a population at the same exact level for every two people? Two, two. great, awesome. 2.1 would be awesome, right? That'd be good, right? 1.7. So here's an interesting thing. In our country today... We have a falling birth rate, so much so that we will not even be able to reproduce the same population again if it was just people in America today. Okay. That hasn't always been the case. In fact, you know, population lines going up and up and up and up. And it's not like that all, all over the world. In fact, as, as recently as, uh, what was it, 1960, what do you think the birth rate was? It's 1.7 now. What do you think it was in 1960 in America, in our country? 3.5. 3.5. Okay. Um, and there are a lot of reasons for that, and I could tell you about later, um, but I'll tell you this, unless there's an exception or a reason why you can't, right? and many of you will have reasons why you can't, you need to be open to having kids. And if you have a lot of them, cool, that's awesome. If you have a couple of them, great, right? but you got to be open to that. That's what marriage is, is about, not in its essence, not the very thing and the only thing it's about, but that is completely connected. Marriage is meant to create a godly home. In fact, that's one of the reasons God says to couples who are married in Israel, he says, don't get divorced. Why? Well, write this down. Malachi 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 15. Malachi 2, 15. God sp- speaks through Malachi to this group of men in particular. Some of them wanted to divorce their wives. Like they hadn't done it yet, but they were thinking about it and they're thinking about moving on and being with other people. And here's what God said to them. He says, did not God, right, this is Malachi speaking, did not God make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? So like God did something even mysterious when they got married. And what was God seeking? What did God want when he made them one? Here's what he was seeking. Godly offspring. Why does God want two parents to stay together? Well, partially because he wants godly children to come from that. And again, is it saying it's impossible for godly children to come from any other means? I'm not saying that. But statistically, right, what is the best way To have godly children, statistically, it's to have two parents that are staying together, that stay married, right? Through their differences, right? And some of you know this because maybe your parents have had differences and you know about some of the differences your parents have had, but they've decided, you know what, we're gonna stay together, right? You know what God does? You know what he thinks about that? He applauds that. Even if you don't understand, even if you think, ah, it's weird. Well, God applauds that. He says, so guard yourself in your spirit. So he tells these guys, hey. God wants godly offspring. He wants you to have kids that obey God. And I'll say the same thing today. I think God wants you to have the next generation follow him, right? Whether it be through you having kids, right, which is one avenue, but also you making disciples in our world, God wants people to follow him. That's still true. And in marriage, it's important that you say, I'm not going to be faithless to the wife of my youth. More stats here. Um, this is a, a very popular study came out in 2021 and it was studying the effects of people who don't have a father in the home or a father figure. So these are people without a, a dad or a stepdad in the home or anything like that, right? Single mom, right? No dads in the home. Here's some stats for you. They make up currently in the United States, 25% of kids today don't have a dad in the home. That's a pretty high amount. That's as high as it's ever been, right? So 75% of people in our country who grow up, there is a dad in the home right? Whether it be your dad or your stepdad or there's a father figure. Um, So 25% don't. Of the people who run away from home or drop out of high school, 90% of them, 90% are part of that little one quarter who don't have dads, 90%. 80% of kids today who have behavioral disorders don't have dad in the home. 85% of all the kids who have behavioral disorders don't have dad there. 70% 70% of all teens that right now are in any kind of drug rehabilitation center or program, 70% of them don't have dad in the home. 63% of teens who commit suicide, who kill themselves as teenagers, 63%, more than half, don't have dad there. Now, does that mean that dad there solves everything? I'm not saying that about any of these problems. Okay? But what I am saying is the stats, even in our country today, bear this out. Marriage meant to create a godly home. Your marriage has a massive impact on your kids, obviously. It's something that you should think about. The next thing, maybe a little bit more optimistic and cheery, something maybe nicer to hear, uh, letter D, marriage is meant to fulfill a deep longing for intimacy. Marriage is how God designed your drive to be intimate with somebody, to be um, with somebody, whether that be just companionship, and also sexually, right? How did God design that? Desire that you have to be fulfilled. He designed it to be fulfilled in marriage. We read Genesis 2 24, but let me tell you what happens right before that. Right before in Genesis 2, God says about Adam that there's not a helper fit for him. Like there's nobody, there's no animal that will be able to really provide the companionship and the help that he really needs. So God creates Eve from the rib of Adam. And if you think that's weird, is she just made up of a rib? Well, remember, God made Adam from the dirt. So, like, Adam's thing was a little bit more impressive, in my opinion. Right, he used human substance to make Eve. Right? he used the dirt to make Adam. So whatever. Point is, you know, don't take that too far and think like, oh well, men are dirt and you know women are ribs. But you know, just if you want to know your source, right? Where God made you out of. That's the kind of where it came from, right? Um, here's the point. He did that, and when Adam woke up. And he saw Eve and he interacted with Eve. He said this, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, right? And then it says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So just like what happened there, similar to what every person who ends up getting married, same same idea is gonna happen there. And then the next verse, very interesting, the one everybody in Sunday school is like, ooh, what's with that? It says, then they were naked and unashamed. I think that's kind of weird, right? Some of you are like, I'm glad, you know, people started wearing clothes at some point, right? That would be a weird world if people were naked and unashamed all the time. I mean, everybody, right? Don't think that you'd like it because it's going to be everybody. Remember, everybody. You don't, yeah, you don't want to see that, right? Um, (laughs) And then, here's a thought for you. Is there any place, is there any relationship that even today that saying is still true? Naked and unashamed? Yeah, actually, well, what relationship? Well, with the relationship we just talked about in verse 24, right? A man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The whole reason Eve was created for Adam was to fulfill that deep desire, and I know it goes both ways, right? It's not just that women exist purely for the help of man. Part of that's true. Women are existing for the help of man, and Paul reiterates that in 1 Corinthians 11, but men exist also for the help and love and protection of, of women too. So that, those things are also true. When you think about um, intimacy, right? The first word that comes to your mind is sex, right? Um, and that's a good thing. Uh, you know, sex is actually a good thing. Maybe you didn't ever hear that before, but who made sex? Right? Well, God made sex. Did sex exist before sin? Yes, it did. Right. Was sex a good thing? Yes, it was, right? So much so that sex is still a good thing in one context that God says it's good. In a marriage between one man and one woman, it is good, right? Maybe you've never thought about this, but as you read the book of Proverbs, we just pass over some of it, and we're just like, oh, that's weird. Uh, write this down. Proverbs 5, verse 18. Proverbs 5:18. Write it down and thank me later. Um, you read over this, and you're like, okay, okay, this is weird. I don't understand this. This is odd. Like, let me get past it. But this is from a father to a son about, hey, you should be excited about being married. And I think at this point, he's talking to a guy who is married, right? Um, And here's what he says. Let your fountain always be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. So he says, be super excited and romantically enthused, if you want to use that word, or just excited about the wife you're married to, the wife of your youth. Verse 19 says, a lovely deer in a graceful doe Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight and be always intoxicated in her love. Did you know that the Bible says that if you're married, you should be always intoxicated in the love of the spouse that you chose? Interesting thought. Always excited. Yeah. I mean, that's be intoxicated always. So I guess you can define that as, you know, once a week or you could say, you know, that's probably more than that, right? Always. What does that mean? Well, then he says, well, because verse 20 says, why should you be intoxicated, my son, with the forbidden woman, right? Right? If you don't get excited romantically about this relationship that God has given you for your enjoyment, right, here's the problem. If you don't do that, what's gonna happen is you're probably gonna get excited about a relationship that you can't have, that breaks God's rules, that causes death and destruction. So, so be excited about the person you're married to. Romantically, yes. Companionship-wise, yes. Sexually, yes. All of the above. 1 Corinthians 7 goes even further. Paul tells these people um, in Corinth, again, this is the New Testament church, He says, hey, if if you have a drive to get married, if you have a drive to have sex, well, then you should should get married. That's a good thing. He says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise, the wife to their husband. Conjugal rights means sex, right? Um, Verse four says, for the wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Then he says, don't deprive one another. Don't say, no, we're not gonna be romantic, right? Guys shouldn't say, no, no flowers, no, you're already my wife. Eh, forget it. I'm not going to be romantic with you. Right? Um, can't do that. Don't deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. That's a lot of qualifications that he gives. Except, maybe, perhaps, sort of, by agreement, if you both agree, for a limited time, so a short amount of time. Like, you see this? Like Proverbs 5 wins... Over the, you know, the always, and he says maybe there's a time when you're married to step back from this for prayer or if you want to devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again so Satan doesn't tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Uh, what has God designed to fulfill the deep longing for intimacy, companionship, uh, uh, sex, and um, even, if you want to put it this way, it's an odd thought, but even a best friend, a person you always can go to. God has designed something for that, and it's marriage. Here's the thing, though. We could end it right there and say, okay, let's go on to point number two and start talking to the ladies. But here's the thing the Bible also says that marriage does not have to be for everyone. In fact, the New Testament makes that very clear. So, letter E is marriage is not for everyone. It's not for everyone. Here's how I know that for sure because there will be people who want to get married who can't get married. There will be people who are planning on getting married who will die before they get married. I know some people like that. There are people who say, I, I don't want to be married, and God says, okay, you're not a second-class citizen. Oh, you're not, like, uh, less than other people because you don't want to get married and can't have kids. Like, well, that's that's a. he says. No, no, you can do that, and you can do it in a way that honors God. 1 Corinthians 7, he says, um, he says, look, if you do marry, you've not sinned, right? Getting married isn't sin. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you of that. Paul's like, hey, I'm choosing not to be married, Because I know getting married brings on an extra level of burden that keeps, for Paul, that keeps him from doing the ministry he needs to do. And he says that later. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to please the Lord. But the married man, he's anxious about a lot of things. He's anxious about worldly things. He's anxious about the food. He's anxious about the clothing. He's anxious about the house. He's anxious about the kids. He's anxious about the wife. There's plenty of things that Paul doesn't have to be anxious about. Because he can say, you know what? I can get thrown in a dungeon. It's not a big deal. I'm flying solo. It's not. It's not a big. I mean, yeah, I don't prefer it, but could Paul have the same attitude? Could he do the same things? If he had a wife and kids with him, he wouldn't feel the same way, right? He could do the same things, but he wouldn't do it in the same way. He says, "I want you to be free from that." So much so that your Bibles are probably still turned to Matthew 19. Mine is at least. If you read verse 10, right after Jesus lays down the law about marriage, the disciples said to him, "If such is the case with the man and his wife, it's better not to marry." And you're thinking, whoa, slow down! Like, no, 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 it's still going to get married. What do you think Jesus is going to say here? You think, well, you know, but most people get married, and you, know, you shouldn't say that, Peter. You shouldn't say that, you know, John, whoever said that. Right? He says not everyone can receive what you just said. Right? Not everyone can receive that saying, but to those, but only to those who it is given. Right? There are people who existed back then. There are people now in our church and in, in this group probably, who will not get married. And what he says here is God has given that to people, certain people, as a gift. If you don't have a drive for that same companionship, if you don't have a drive for that same sexual desire, well then you know, it, it might be a good sign that you're not going to get married, and that's okay. It's not a bad thing. In fact, you are considered a special class of people to God. At least in 1 Corinthians 7, you're considered a special class that can do more for the Lord so marriage is not for everybody. So I know as we talk about marriage this week and next week, I know many of you are thinking, well, what if I don't get married? Well, the Bible says that's okay if you don't get married. In fact, it's a good thing in some regards um, if that's your choice. Right? It's not a good thing if you want to get married and you have a desire to get married, and then you don't get married right? because you're selfish or because um, you can't. Uh, you know, that's not a good thing. I'm not saying that. Anyway, okay. So we just looked at all the Bible. Right? Now we got 10 minutes. Okay. We only got a little bit of time, but here's what we're going to do. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 5, and let's look at this text again. We've been talking to everybody, but now let's, let's focus in on what this text says to you ladies. Because remember, it's not actually talking to you ladies, it's actually talking to married ladies. So for you ladies, statistically, that's who you're going to be at some point. But this will be really instructive because, you know, guys, as we read this too, um, this might feel like, oh, yeah, I like this passage. Well, be careful. Be um, careful. Because you don't know what's coming next in verse 25, but also there should be an added level of pressure that you feel to be the man that you need to be, to be someone that there is going to be a lady who decides, I will follow you. I will follow your leadership. I will submit to you. Look at verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Not to everybody, but to your own husbands as to the Lord. As to the Lord who? Jesus. So, how would you submit to Jesus? If Jesus was your husband, how would you interact with him, right? How, that's what I'm saying is, if you've got a decision you need to make, right? That's what I mean by submitting. If you've got a decision you need to make, right, and your husband says this, and you think that, right, and you come at odds, and, and it's like, well, but I'm willing to do what you want to do. Not my will, but yours be done, right? That's what he's trying to say. Um, as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. So a lot to say here. First of all, future wise, point number two, um, Submit to the husband you choose. Submit to the husband you choose. You notice how I say you choose? Because here's the thing. In our world, in our time, you have an added benefit that someone else is not going to select your spouse for you. Because here's what I would say. If you were in Ephesus, submit to your husband, who God chose for you. And again, do I still believe that God chooses all of your spouses for us? Of course I do. But you now, ladies, have a key part in all of this. You are choosing Who will be the authority? That's interesting. It's something you didn't get to do with your parents. Your parents, you didn't say, okay, I got a whole menu of people. Here's the mom I want. Here's the dad I want. Great, I mean, that mom seems really cool. She'll let me stay out late. This dad, I mean, he's not super, he's super chill. And you chose your parents. Did you choose your parents? You didn't choose your parents. But guess what the Bible says? "Obey your parents? So many people are called to submit to authority figures that they never chose. Here's just the thing. You get to choose your husband ladies, that is an amazing gift from God that you should be thankful for every day. You really should be thankful that you get to choose. Look, this is a really hard text if I'm preaching it just to the married ladies, because I have to say, hey, married ladies, look at your husband. Say, hey, you're you're the boss, right? As to the Lord, right? Lord is a technical term, but it's referring to Jesus, right? He's the boss. I'll do what you want me to do. Like, we'll go where you want to go. If you say we need to move across the country, okay, we're going to move across the country. If you say we want to downsize, we're going to downsize, right? And again, these things, like, like I don't care. Um, but those of you who are leaders, you're married, you know this is a big deal, right? But for you, this is a great text if you're in high school. Because this gives you the roadmap of marriage, and now you get to make some wise decisions ahead of time. First of all, letter A, something to take note of here, where it says in verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife. What does that mean? Well, it means ladies, that your husband will have authority from God. That's letter A. Um, your husband will have authority from God. So that's important to recognize. The authority, where does it come from? Well, it comes from the Lord. Just like uh, your parents have authority from God. Right. I can tell you, if you're blatantly disobedient to your parents, you're disobeying God. And you might say, okay, wait, wait, how is that? Because my parents aren't God. I can look at the next chapter, chapter six, and say, well, God gives them this authority though. Romans 13 says God gives that authority to the government. There's plenty of institutions that God gives authority to, but one of the institutions, so to speak, that God gives authority to is to husbands. They have authority. So here's the thing. A lot of you, don't tell your parents I said this, but some of you are smarter than your parents, at least intellectually. You're quicker, right? They can't remember stuff, but you can. Because you're smarter, does that take away the authority that God gave them? Many of you are smarter than your elected officials, okay? Many of them are. You are, a lot of you, I could put you up against a lot of them, right? You're thinking of all the the things you've seen, the internet memes with the gaffes. Yeah, I mean, I could probably get you to read a teleprompter better than the president, right? Uh, Okay? So, does that mean that they do not have authority from God? And that oh, you know, whatever they say, it doesn't matter, right? No, it doesn't. Here's the thing, many of you ladies might have trouble with this right here because you might think, well, but I am more capable and maybe even smarter than the guy I chose to marry. Well, here's one suggestion, maybe don't choose a guy that's not as smart as you, just maybe a suggestion, but even if you do, that's fine, but you gotta recognize then it's gonna be harder for you to do this, and that's okay, but you gotta say, well, but God has given them authority. The word head means authority. And I said that, but here's another text that references this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11:3, he says, "I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ." So every man, guess what you need to do? Submit to Jesus. He's your boss, your direct boss. You'll be held accountable to him. He's the head. And the head of the wife is her husband. Okay? So if we're just putting these levels of authority, it's like, you know, Jesus is the boss for every man. Every man has to follow Jesus. Every wife also has authority, different level of authority, obviously. Right? The man's not the same as Jesus, right? i saying that. This says every woman has a head, and, and that's her husband. And the head of Christ, going back to Jesus, right? Who's the head of Christ? He says the head of Christ is God, probably referencing God the Father. So what he's saying is God the Son, Jesus, submits, puts his will underneath God the Father's will. You you saw it happen on earth, right? When he was praying, he said, not my will, but yours be done. That's an example of submission. That's a perfect, I mean, that's a great picture of submission. Not my will, but yours be done. Cheerfully and joyfully, I'll do it. That's what Jesus did with the Father. He's trying to say, look, is God the Son less than God the Father? No, that's heresy to say that Jesus is less than God. Ontologically equal. in Value, worth, knowledge, wisdom, power. But there's submission that happens there's a role that's taken, right, that the son willingly takes, according to Philippians 2. It's very similar to husbands and wives. The wife might be smarter or, or better at a lot of things, but ladies, here's what this text is saying, but you need to take the role that God has assigned if you get married. You need to take that spot. 1 Peter 3 puts it like this, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of of their wives. So there's these ladies in the church who are married to non-Christians, right? They um, became Christians as they were saved, right? there's a, or as they were, uh, they were already married when they became a Christian. Right? This happens to plenty of ladies. I can think of plenty of ladies in our church. right? They became a Christian. They were already married. They're married to a non-Christian. Here's what he says there. Even them, even the ladies that are married to non-Christians, you still should subject yourself, put your will underneath your husband's will. Why? Because you might win them without a word. Your conduct might be the thing that draws them to Christ. And you might say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. But if they could make a little argument, well, if they're not a Christian, and they don't submit to Jesus, and Jesus isn't their head, then do I really need to submit to that? That's what he's addressing. He's saying, no, no, it still applies. And he talks about, hey, don't make your adorning, don't get all dressed up on the external, be dressed up on the internal, right? In the heart, the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a quiet and gentle spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Right? The world looks at a lot of things about you ladies and says, this is what gives you value. How you look, how you talk, how many followers you have. And here's what God says is precious or valuable to him. Your heart. Your heart before God. Because right? that's precious to him. So, all of this leads us to let letter be. Choose a husband wisely. Ladies, choose a husband wisely. Can I say it again? Choose a husband wisely. Because all that we just studied about marriage, guess what? You get one shot at this. And a lot of people in this room will get married in the next five or six years. Maybe not a lot of people, but some of you. Um, You'll be making decisions about who's going to be your spouse soon. Choose a husband wisely. Genesis 3.16, right after the curse... God said to Eve, he said, here's part of the curse, okay? He says, first of all, it's going to be hard to have kids. So apparently it would have been easier to have kids, and it wouldn't have been a pain to have kids um, before sin. But he says, now, because of sin, it's going to be hard. It's going to be painful. But then the next thing he says, everyone passes over. They don't understand it. But listen to this. Genesis 3.16. God said to Eve, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. Fighting, quarreling, but... He shall rule over you. He's saying, here's part of the curse. There's going to be marriage problems. There's going to be friction. You're going to want things, and your husband is going to want things. And sadly, in a lot of sinful situations, right, the husband is going to rule over them, and sometimes in sinful ways. Other times, they might do it in godly ways. But the point is, that's what's going to happen. It's a result of sin. So guess what? You need to say, well, what husband, what guy out there Do I want to say you are going to be the leader in my life? Think that through. That's different than saying what's the cutest guy, what guy makes me laugh, because what you're really saying when you get married is I will love, submit, and submit to you. That's usually not your criteria for dating, right? It's usually not like, hey, you know, which, which guy is godly out there, you know, and which guy do I, like, want to follow his leadership? And, you know, that's usually not on the top of people's priority list, but it needs to be on the top of yours, ladies. And, and here's what you might think, and here's the common thing that many people say. Hey, if I date somebody who's a loser, right, or a fixer-upper, you know, I'm just kind of, you know, with him, trying to make him better or whatever, like, it's okay, because, you know, if it doesn't work out, I just won't marry him, okay? Can I tell you, if you date a person who maybe is not a spiritual leader or... Uh, is not excited about godly things, or doesn't push you to do godly things, guess what? If you date one, you will also marry one. They'll marry one. You won't get to a place in your relationship where you're closer than you've ever been before and say, now it's, now it's gonna be time to break it off because now I can tell you're not a spiritual leader. You'll probably just fall into that. And you'll be one of the many, many people, right? and ladies in particular I'm thinking of, who married a person who played the game, kind of looked the part, but was not actually saved. And guess what? It doesn't take very long after you get married for that to come to light. I've seen that happen time and time again, right? People in the church, looks like everything's okay, right? Do you, you want to submit to him? Well, I mean, he's kinda, I don't know if he's a spiritual leader, but like, I'll just be the spiritual leader of the home. Like, okay, try to, you try to have two heads. That's called the dragon. That's called the monster, right? Um, anything with two heads, it's not, gonna, it's not gonna be good, right? Try that for a little, and then, oh, well, he, he doesn't want to go to church, and, I'm really dragging him to church, and hopefully, now that we have kids who come to church, and it's just all these hopes and hopes and hopes and hopes. And um, unless God intervenes in that marriage and saves that guy radically, you have a really um, disastrous marriage in a lot of ways. Choose a husband wisely. If you're dating somebody who's not a spiritual leader, you will marry someone who's not a spiritual leader. Um, so for some of you, that might have to take certain people off the list of eligible bachelors, right? Think about it. There are people that you might like. There are people who you might think, yeah, I really like them. They're really nice. If they are not spiritual leaders and they won't spiritually lead you, you I'll just tell you this. As your pastor, take them off the list. Uh, you know, I think about this more now because I've got a little girl, right? I think, oh, the person that she's going to marry, But the thing that I want to encourage with her is like, hey, remember what you're choosing, right? You're choosing an authority figure. Don't date a loser, right? Same thing for you guys, right? That's tomorrow. That's next week's sermon, right? Not tomorrow, hopefully. Uh, Next week. Um, But your criteria of who you want to—that's very, very important that it comes underneath the authority of God. When I got married to Alexandra, it was great, super fun. Loved all the people there. But right before we got married, we had to start making some uh, big purchases. That's what you always have to do, right? You got to buy a couch. You got to buy, you know, a bed, a mattress, right? All, all this stuff, the dressers, all this stuff that you don't want to spend the money on, that's what you got to spend the money on. That's why people give you all that money. And you're like, sweet, vacations. Like, oh, actually, buy a kitchen table, right? Like, oh, man. Whenever I think of money, this is really bad, okay? But I always think in terms of, like, how many golf, how much golf equipment could I buy with that, Right? every month. Like, rent? Like, dude, I could buy a new set of clubs every single stinking month. Oh, it'd be aw- I could golf, like, every day with what I spend on rent. Every month, whatever. Anyway, um, point is, we had to buy stuff, and one of the things that we bought that was memorable was our kitchen table. So, we went to Costco. Shout out, Studebaker. Uh, we went to Costco. We're walking around. We learned the whole, you know, idea about the ones that get put out and have the certain, you know, what is it, like, the, the scents look different and that tells you they're about to clear it out and it's the lowest price. Um, anyway, so we're like, this is a great price on a kitchen table. It was nice, it was big, it was expandable. It had eight chairs and it had high chairs so they were like, you know, barstool height, right? Pretty high. We're thinking, this is great. It was a dark brown color. My wife didn't really like the color but I'm like, hey, it's 500 bucks. I don't think we're gonna do better than this. It's Costco. If it's terrible, we can always return it, right? This will be fine. So we buy it. Can I remember, remind you? She didn't like it very much. Okay, um, great. It's got eight chairs. Chairs are big and heavy. And the problem is, when I sit in it, um, every time I like try to scooch in, where you gotta like you know move the chair, I gotta I hit my knee because like the distance between the chair and like the bottom of the table is for me it just seems like it's like nothing, right? So my knee's always gonna hit it. So I did this for two years two years of our marriage, right? All the way through COVID. And we're like, man, this table, this table. And then one day, my wife decides to sell it, which was a great day. It was awesome. We bought it for 500. We sold it for 600. (laughs) Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Then we bought another table for like 400. She didn't like that. She sold it again. (laughs) Sold it for 425. So we're like plus 125 on table. Yeah. Proverbs 31, she goes out and buys wool and flax. Here's why I tell you this story. Because every time I like to complain about the table, and every time I hit my knee, and I was, oh, Alexander, this table sucks. I hate this table. Right? Every time, you know, what I got reminded hey, this is the table you chose. This was your decision. Who's My wife didn't say this, but I always imagine. Oh, whose decision, John? Was it yours or mine? Oh, it seemed like it was your choice to buy this table. Thankfully, she took care of it. Here's the thing. None of you can complain about the husbands that you chose at this point. Thank God, right? Um, But many people, many of you, might find yourself in a situation where you might want to complain one day. But here's the reality. Here's what I can tell you. You're still in the shopping stage. You're still choosing at this point. Choose a husband wisely. Super important. That will affect the rest of your life and your Christian life, too. Let me pray um, for you guys, and we'll head out. pray that God would help you with all this. God, you are so good to give us instructions in your word about what marriage is and what it isn't. I pray that every person here in True North would just take away a lot from everything the Bible says, but even what Ephesians 5 has to say about wives and their responsibilities. I pray that these ladies would... uh, find godly husbands, and that these guys would step up and be the guys that they can actually follow. You know, it's a huge problem in our world to have men that don't lead and men that are not godly themselves, so I pray that you would supply that even through this ministry. These guys would step up and get excited about fulfilling this role of a husband, and that these ladies would get up and be excited about um, fulfilling this role of a wife. I pray that in all these things you would create um, more godly families and that um, through all of it, you would just continue to build your kingdom and that we would uh, make every decision with that in mind. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.